covering what is manufacturing. Manufacturing is turning raw materials into finished goods, employing instruments, machinery, labour and chemical or biological processing. In addition, it is the production of more complex elements by selling essential items to producers to manufacture such items as household appliances, planes or vehicles. Manufacturing is critical not just for creating and distributing goods in the marketplace, but also for economic reasons. Manufacturing, engineering or processing might turn raw resources into completed goods and this process starts with material selection and product development. Then to produce the finished goods the materials could be modified during several production steps. Manufacturing is easy to run. An owner purchases parts or raw materials and uses them to create a finished item. However, to run a business, the producer must cover costs, satisfy demand and produce items to meet the market supply. What? All right, we're back for another great episode of How to Acquire Podcast, and I'm truly excited uh, for this conversation. We're going to dive into a topic that actually I don't see a lot of people within the podcast space uh, go into and explore. And I think if we're going to talk about acquisitions, we should be talking about all the major uh, industries that uh, shape the uh, world of acquisitions. And of course, from the intro, you heard us talking about manufacturing. That was from Kalkin Media. They put together a really great video on manufacturing. And I believe if we're going to talk about a particular topic, we should bring in someone who's working on the ground floor in that particular area. Joining me on this particular episode is Jules Brenner of ManufacturingSuccession.com. Welcome to How to Acquire a Podcast. Thank you, DJ. It's uh, exciting to be here. Thank you for joining us. For those who don't know who you are, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the world of manufacturing. Uh, sure. Um, so, um, Jules, um, you know, I'm originally from Brooklyn, New York. Um, you know, I went to college. Initially, I, I applied for business, but ended up really just deciding that I wanted to do engineering. I always kind of thought between the two. Um, ended up going to college for mechanical engineering and aerospace. Um, during that time, I took a few business classes that then eventually developed into like taking a full-blown minor um, in it and um, kind of fell in love with um, just making things. I started a, a few clubs with a few teammates at college. Um, started a Baja team. We were doing fabrication. Um, worked at a bunch of like industrial manufacturing startups um, where, you know, I got to see the more futuristic parts being made and um, fell in love with it. Right. And um, after college, um, I decided to go into the space, uh, worked some more in industrial tech companies, um, you know, a lot of them like manufacturing things from ground zero. And, um, you know, after seeing a lot of this, uh, you know, manufacturing in California, seeing that there were a lot of businesses that were coming for sale in the coming years, um, wanted to be able to, you know, provide succession plans for owners while keeping manufacturing um, alive and well in the U.S. Um, so, you know, really excited about the space. I think it's one of those things that's uh, definitely there's more of it coming back to the U.S. Uh, but more importantly, there's a lot of innovation going on in the space that I think a lot of people aren't talking about. Definitely. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, this conversation for a, a couple of different reasons. I want to highlight manufacturing. For one, I think it doesn't get enough focus, especially when you look at the data surrounding the manufacturing industry. It's like, wait, hold on. I think we did an episode last season 
where uh, the, the majority of where billionaires build their wealth. One is in the finance uh, sector, and uh, one is in industrial conglomerates. And then I think in the top five is uh, manufacturing. And, but then when you actually look within the podcast space or most content creators in the acquisition space, it doesn't tend to get the coverage that it's seeking. So that's one of the things I want to cover today with you. And then, of course, you're talking about aerospace. You and I are going to have to have some conversations about aerospace. I've always had an interest in it. So I'm curious to know a little bit uh, about uh, your journey in there. Uh, so let's start there. How did you get interested in aerospace and how does that relate to what you're currently doing today? Uh, yeah, so, well, aerospace wise, I think I'm a little biased. My father has a, a master's degree in uh, aerospace engineering. Awesome. Uh, but interestingly enough, when I was a kid, I don't remember any particular moments where I was like shown that uh, industry. Um, what I did do, however, was um, as soon as I kind of could afford it and got old enough, I saved up money to buy my first car. And I fell in love with like all sorts of like mechanical systems, how you can take, you know, a chemical and gasoline, combine it with um, electronics, um, combine it with airflow and combine mm -hmm. it with mechanical hardware to make something work. I thought that was really cool. And, um, you know, I think planes were another extension of that where they allow you to travel further distances. There's more complexity to it. And um, when I started taking classes in college on it, I thought it was really interesting how they pretty much figured out equations uh, for every type of process a plane goes through. And, um, you know, that kind of got me hooked. So I really wanted to, um, you know, complete the minor then. And then, um, you know, at the same time, when I got out of college, I actually looked predominantly for aerospace jobs. And um, Southern California had a lot of them. I actually ended up getting an offer to one, ended up saying no to it. It wasn't a fit on the role itself, but it would have launched me pretty squarely into that industry. And, um, you know, over time, I kind of, as a did a search for a business to acquire. I actually started there. Uh, but funny enough, I started right through COVID. So the whole aerospace industry completely fell off. And again, wow. it didn't work out where we could actually buy something in the mm -hmm. space. So uh, maybe, you know, in the future, uh, we certainly still have some good relationships with people who run aerospace companies um, in Southern California. Um, and it'll likely be that we end up buying something in that space here. But uh, at least probably in another two, three years, we kind of give the industry some time to recover. That's awesome. Yeah, I've always had an interest. And I do hear that um, the projections for the future of aerospace are bright. I don't know how true that is, but I hear that they're wonderful. So I am interested in looking that area. Uh, so you start this, uh, this company, this website about manufacturing secession. And immediately when I see the website and I'm going through it, I'm thinking about the show secession. And on HBO, and I'm thinking, okay, wait, hold on, what's you know, what's the connection here? And I'm and I'm watching on your website, and I might pull it up later in the episode. I'm looking on your website, and you have your video, and you're talking about how you were talking to these different business owners, and they didn't necessarily have a succession plan, or their kids were going into different fields, and so you created this space for them to have a, a safe place uh, for their legacy of their business. Can you tell me about the um, uh, I guess the beginning stages of launching the company and how things have gone since you started working with the different manufacturing owners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so I, you know, it was interesting because when I got out of college and moved to California, that was the first time 
when I started seeing that there was this like, you know, um, hole in the market for succession plans for manufacturing business owners, particularly in California. You know, there's a lot of them that, you know, moved to the state when there was low traffic, low taxes, and now it's totally not that and they want to get out. Right. And the thing is, when you want to get out quickly, that tends to be a very difficult sale. Right. Most, um, you know, buyers, private equity shops, they want someone to um, be involved for a few years. Right. And, um, you know, we really niche down and focusing on that business owner that, um, you know, has a business that hits certain attributes in terms of, you know, financial metrics. And we could touch on that, but also really someone that values highly being able to leave their company um, quickly. Right. And. Um, having an engineering degree myself, it gives them, you know, comfort in the fact that we won't totally walk in and not know what we're doing, right? And I think for that reason, a lot of people avoid manufacturing because it is harder. You know, I mean, if you you have to understand more technical stuff than you might need to if you did, let's say, like a landscaping company. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I'm always in my career been a big fan of going where others don't, um, and oftentimes it's others don't because you know of some limiting belief, like they don't, you know, an industry is dirty or something like that. Um, and kind of, um, you know, adding value from that perspective. But, um, you know, I, at that time when I was out of college, I kind of met enough business owners. I was just honestly looking for a job at that point. Right. And I would just talk to people to see if I can come work at their 20, 30 person company. And, um, you know, I didn't end up finding any fits there. Um, what ended up happening is I ended up going back into industrial technology, which is, um, pretty much where I did all my internships in college. Um, got a, you know, jobs that are, you know, a startup that ended up that they do like uh, manufacturing of electric vehicles, fell into the space, um, fell in love with it, um, moved up to the Bay Area for a bit, worked in software side of um, kind of industrials doing the software for electric vehicle charging stations. Um, and then it was around during that time where I learned about searchfunder.com and um, was immediately like intrigued because I knew that businesses could be bought. I just didn't know that there was a whole um, system, if you will, uh, made for it. And um, I remember when I started, I, I brought, uh, you know, I did the research. I realized that, like, you know, a lot of people who do it end up having MBAs. And I figured, like, you know, I, I have enough of the business knowledge to be successful in this. But, you know, just aesthetically, they want an MBA. So what I ended up doing was um, saying, I'm going to stick to what I know. And manufacturing was something I knew well. I knew there was a big goal in the market. I read all the books on it. A lot of the typical search fund investing crowd um, try to push you towards a service-based company. And frankly, rightfully so. The margins are higher. It's easier to grow. You don't have to keep reinvesting as often to the company. Um, and, you know, I, I, for, I don't know, for some reason, call it, you know, the uh, innocence of youth or whatever it is, um, said, no, screw it. I'm going to go into manufacturing because I know there's more opportunity there. And I initially, there's like two paths that you can go through with a search fund for you know, finding a company. You can go a traditional search or self-funded. Traditional is where you raise money ahead of time from investors call it like a, basically a seed round for a startup and you use that to find the company. But then when you buy it, um, you have to go back to them, use their money again, and then you get less economics and less control. Typically those companies are bigger deals because you need to have more kind of a larger pie for everyone to participate uh, from an economics perspective. And then um, ended up, um, you know, looking at the other option as well too, which is self-funded search where you go and you find the company yourself and then you um, bring that to investors and get it funded, but then you end up owning a larger share of the business. But the business also ends up being smaller. So, um, you know, we started initially, I wanted to do a traditional search. I took my uh, whole thesis and concept. So like every um, traditional search investor I could find, and pretty much they all thought I was ridiculous. 
I said that, uh, you know, manufacturing doesn't work and every, 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 you know, excuse in the book on it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, since I was in industrial tech and in startups, like, you know, the rejection is not nothing, you know, new to me. I mean, you right. deal with that all the time. And um, so what I decided to then do is like keep a call it an open mind um, into the search and, um, you know, got into the, uh, you know, just looking for deals, you know, so like kind of saying, all right, I have a very specific niche on industry and location. Um, if I constrain these two, it doesn't mean I'm going to find all the deals in the world. I'll find enough where I can then let the market kind of tell me which funding route I should take. So um, this was um, caught in March, when was it? March 2020 when I started doing this, which is like arguably the worst time to start a search. And I look <laughs> back at it and think how ridiculous I was. I knew that the average amount of time it would take based on the Stanford search from primers a year and a half. Um, but COVID totally derailed that. Um, so basically the rest of 2020, we had two aerospace deals that we were looking on closing and just out of nowhere as COVID just intensified these guys, their revenue went to crap. They're like, mm. I, I can't even talk to you. I have to go figure out how to salvage my company. Yeah. And, um, you know, we lost the rest of 2020 and then, um, around January of 2021, I basically said, all right, well, we have to try a different approach. Um, and you know, we were getting maybe like five deals a week sent to us from brokers at that time. Um, well, now it's like more like 50, right? So wow. really, cr- really crazy in, in mm-hmm. terms of difference. But what we ended up doing is like finding a company on the East Coast that manufactured architectural lighting. And we put that one under contract. That was actually a larger deal. So it was more traditional search fund um, slash like, you know, micro private equity or lower market private equity investors. Mm-hmm. Um, so then um, we took that deal. We took it to the market. Um, and then we were pretty much a month before closing it. And then the uh, owners of the company decided that they don't want to sell anymore. Wow. So at this point, we're like, crap, you know, we're, we're, we're in too deep. We had funding lined up. We met a lot of investors. We've proven the concept. We love the, we love the business. Um, but then they said, hey, like, listen, I just I need two, three more years. I want to make some more money out of this company before I retire. And um, kept the relationship, said, all right, you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look for something else. Um, and then around um, late September of that year, we came across a company that we own now um, called American Sheet Metal. And American Sheet Metal, um, we put it under LOI December 1st, closed it July of 2022. And the business predominantly manufactures components for infrastructure. Um, so think like highways, roads, bridges, um, transit projects. Um, you know, some kind of notable stuff for anyone who's outside of LA is like we work on the LAX um, people mover project, the little tramway that go from the terminals to the rental cars. Um, we did all the um, stormwater drainage systems as well as some of the plates that um, are part of the track at the seismic zone. So if there is an earthquake, the you know, there's some flex and give so it doesn't collapse the whole bridge. Um, and we do a lot of like metal furnishings for train stations and things like that. And um, you know, we've been seeing like other opportunities now um, in the company to grow through other acquisitions, um, you know, smaller companies, one man shops that want to be under a bigger umbrella, things like that, that um, we've been working through now. So really excited for the future. And, um, you know, we fundamentally started just being more open minded. You know, we look at manufacturers now. We also look a little bit on industrial services um, and try to really you know branch out as well, too, to have more well-rounded um, you know, umbrella companies. Um, but I, you know, I'd be happy to elaborate on any of those points. Just let me know, DJ. Yeah, we're about to dive in. This is really exciting. I think there's a few different, uh, gems that we can pull out of this, uh, for our listeners. Uh, the first thing that stands out to me is what was, or how long would you say the process was with the company that 
you did uh, eventually end up acquiring from start to finish. How long was that process? And what did what were some of the key takeaways that you learned uh, going through that process? Yeah, um, so my situation is not normal. Um, you know, this is actually a very long closing process. Um, you know, we we went under LOI on December first and closed seven months later. And even okay. then, it took a month of negotiating prior. Typically, deals are forty five to ninety days, mm-hmm. right, to close. So we were not typical at all. Um, diligence took a long time. The ownership wanted to, you know, send out the closing of the deal too, so they can, you know, get their financial benefit. And um, you know, it worked. It worked. It worked out well in the sense that it was a clean break. You know, um, perfect close date where financially it makes sense. Um, but it took a really long time. And um, you know, I think it's important, like you know, just because you know you are responsible for what you present to investors, and um, if you don't diligence something well. Um, you know, that's, that's on you. Right. So we really spent the time to look at, like called all the customers we could talk to, you know, got opinions from what they thought about the company, um, went into a full blown quality of earnings process, legal diligence, et cetera. You know, uh, when I'm listening to your, your story and you talked about how everybody was saying, Hey, we're going one way. Why are you going that way? Why are you going towards manufacturing? You know, a lot of the premise of our podcast is what makes a particular industry attractive or why are you looking at this particular asset class? And it's so funny because most people were looking the other way, but you and I know, and those who are really studying the data, we know that manufacturing is one of the key components of of our economy, uh, even during down times. Um, did you ever waver at all when, I mean, of course your background is in this area, but did you ever waver at all when it comes to looking at manufacturing as an industry during your, your time of going through your search? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because, um, having been, um, you know, in the whole Silicon Valley startup scene, um, the word pivot is, um, a very normal word, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I think when you're searching for deals, there's this fine line of like, when do you stay focused enough so that you don't like overwhelm yourself with options, right? Right. I think, um, you know, seeing lots of options helps you get more conviction in the ultimate decision that you end up making. So you do need to see, um, you know, as many companies as you kind of can. But at the same time, um, you know, I knew where I had the highest likelihood um, to convince a certain owner of the FIP. But um, we recorded that video on, that's on the website now, I think December uh, 2020. Okay. And that video very much, uh, funny enough, attracted an owner that fits exactly that profile dead, dead on um, from where he was from to his kids, you know, his whole situation. The, the shop that we filmed it in is an infrastructure manufacturer in Arizona. Um, there's, so, there's so many things that worked out. So in hindsight, it made a lot of sense. Um, but I think like through the process, like manufacturing is tough because the margins are so low that like anything like a fluctuation in the economy or even like just literally the facility shut down because they're not allowed to work due mm-hmm. to COVID, um, removes just enough revenue to take away all of your EBITDA yeah. or most of your EBITDA at least. And when you lose your EBITDA, the business is hard to place a value on, right? So I think there were a lot of times when I looked at, I'm like, am I really just making this harder than it needs to be for myself? And, um, you know, I, I certainly felt that. And then the other problem, too, is in manufacturing, there's a lot of, like, 
um, assets, like hard assets in the companies versus like, say, like the landscaping company, there's a lot less. And a lot of these owners, you know, they, they have a tough time parting with the company for, you know, they think the business is worth what it is from a cash flow perspective, plus the value of the assets, which is not accurate at all, you know, but it's, it's just tough to kind of get people over that understanding of it. Um, so I'd say, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, it was difficult at times, but I knew that like, if we went into a sector of the market that didn't have a lot of buyers, we would find value, right. And be able to buy stuff cheap enough where we could, you know, um, pretty much get, get to a point where we paid off debt earlier, but then more importantly, um, this is a sector I knew really well. I knew how to like come in day one and add a ton of technology and just speak the lingo and do all these things. So I knew that like we would move faster than if we like, let's say broke away from our initial strategy and bought a, a porta potty rental company or something like that. There'd be a huge mm-hmm. learning curve. How do you, you mentioned a, a, another great gem there. How do you protect yourself from around those margins in the manufacturing uh, industry? Have you kind of figured out uh, how to protect yourself as a company? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Um, so we predominantly look for companies that have at least 50% gross margin. And, um, you know, kind of the one, th- one big takeaway I took away from Silicon Valley is like, when you're, you know, starting a startup, your investors, like revenue is important. Sure. Um, EBITDA, EBITDA profitability is important, but more important than anything, when you're going from zero to one is your gross margin. How do you come up with a concept or a product that like, gives your customers so much of a value that they're willing to pay this huge spread. And if you can solve for that, you can hire salespeople to help you with revenue. You can hire operations people to help you with your EBITDA, right? You can figure everything else out. But if the gross margin isn't there, it's really not not that much of a point. You're probably doing a very commoditized service or just something that the customer doesn't value enough. So, you know, we look first and foremost for gross margin. And if the financials don't immediately reflect it, then we'll look for like, is the, is, is ownership screwing something up, right? Are they overspending here? Is there is there a high gross margin to be found here if we do what we need to do, right? Um, so that's first and foremost. But um, I think to protect yourself kind of after that, I mean, it really depends on like, you know, how likely do you think that um, you can continue to find more and more customers, keeping that margin, right? Because sometimes industries are so small that like, yeah, maybe you have a hundred percent of a $4 million market, right? Mm -hmm. Because that you can charge whatever you want margin wise, but what are you going to do after that? You can't grow any more than that. So it's, it's important that like that you have conviction and that there's more people out there that will buy your service because at least you can do something um, to, to fix your situation, right? Versus if you buy a really narrowed in company, which we've found a lot in aerospace, you're screwed if, um, you know, it's probably 50 customers in the country that would even buy this. And if all of them are having, you know, they're already maybe even doing business with you. All right. And they have no more business to give you. Um, what are you going to do? Um, so I think that's really, really important. And, um, you know, as long as you can backtrack to those, I think the rest of the financial model can, you know, solve itself over time. There was something else you said, Jules, that stood out to me as well earlier in this episode, you were describing the different types of projects that the company works on from work, working alongside the airport, uh, working on a, a railroad tracks. Um, a lot of the, what I really want our audience to understand is a lot of times manufacturing is right in front of your eyes and you don't even realize it. Or yeah. the uh, the opportunities right in front of you, you don't realize it. I'm assuming these are pretty big projects that create pretty big revenue for the company. Just an assumption. And many people just, you know, they drive by it every day or they use it every day and they have no idea how it even got there. Can you talk about the importance of uh, 
the manufacturing in our country and really around the world that sometimes people are walking right by every day and they don't even realize it. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I think um, when you get like curious, there's um, I remember when I was a kid, I used to watch like it was like how it's made. Yes, like, yes, uh, yes. Probably have it on YouTube. Um, and then you just see that you're like, you know, you kind of remember that everything came from somewhere, right? I mean, the laptop mm-hmm. we're talking on now, okay, all the parts came from somewhere, different suppliers, different countries, maybe, etc. And um, I think like, you know, in the US, a lot of it has found its way out of it. You know, it's mm-hmm. just not in the culture. Um, this is why, by the way, succession plans don't really exist for manufacturing business owners because the kids don't care for the space, right? So um, unless you are an engineer or did, you know, something like myself or the prior owner of this company, you know, where you're kind of in that realm already or comfortable with that realm, you're going to find a hard time for like the modern education system to, you know, give you enough conviction to go into the space, right? It's just not, you know, super like you're not, you're not the coolest guy in the room when you say you do manufacturing, right? Um, but at the same time, I think, um, you know, when people start to like, you know, see some of the stuff that you make, um, especially if they kind of use it day to day, like for us, we do a lot of bridge deck drainage systems for overpasses here in Southern California. Um, we make a lot of the um, miscellaneous metal concrete embeds, so basically little pins that they would put in the columns of the overpasses to keep it from collapsing. Um, you don't even see that thing. It's buried all the right. way in the concrete, but, but it's in there and it's keeping the whole thing, you know, from coming apart. Um, and I think it gives us, you know, a lot of reminders, right? You drive down the road, you see a little drainage box on there and you're like, yeah, that, that came from somewhere. Um, so I think it's, it, it's one of the cooler things where you get to like feel the impact of what you do going forward. Um, but at the same time, I think, um, it, you got to really niche into the stuff you like in manufacturing because manufacturing is a really broad word, right? Manufacturing soda cans versus manufacturing the stuff that we do versus machining aerospace parts, all different like, um, products, but more importantly, all different cultures right you know if you're doing lots of let's say cans right i mean you're going for volume and you're you know quality control is imperative and what we do is quality control is imperative but oftentimes customers will say hey get it close enough and then just optimize for time get it to us faster right it's going to concrete anyway i don't care if there's a scuff along the middle right and then um you know when it comes to aerospace machining same thing right it's like they need it perfectly precise and you know formed a certain way um so i think as people consider the industry they may want to really think about like what they like, you know, what kind of day-to-day do they want, who are the customer types they want to deal with, what kind of, uh, you know, volume, attitude, etc. Definitely. There's also another thing you said earlier uh, in this episode that I want to uh, touch on, or you may not have said it, but it was definitely on the website. You talked about how, and I thought this is, makes you very unique. You were talking about how a lot of times when people are acquiring, they're looking for something that they can buy and, and then quickly sell. But for you, you're looking for uh, situations where it can be long-term. We can hold it on, hold, hold on to the uh, company as long as possible. Why did you decide to go on that route? And have you noticed that a lot of maybe your peers that you came into the space with, they were going in a different direction? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I talked about the um, traditional and self-funded search models before. Um, so with the traditional search model, I mean, it's more like private equity. You have to sell the company every like five, seven years or, um, you know, investors will usually force something so they can get their investment back, especially if you're buying it for a really high multiple and you don't grow it too much to extract the, their initial investment back plus the return, they're going to likely have to do a sale. 
And, um, you know, for that reason, when you do the sales, you have to be kind of aggressive in what you're able to do with the company in five to seven years, lots of optimizations on EBITDA, things like that, you know, hiring, firing, all that sort of stuff that private equity is kind of known for. Um, and that's, you know, the most likely option for a lot of business owners, say, you know, 2 million of EBITDA and up, right? Those are really, that's all that's available to you. Um, now, when you do the self-funded search, you're, it's, you know, 2 million EBITDA down usually, right? And um, with those, right, it's kind of a give or take sometimes, right? Sometimes, you know, somebody will buy it like a private, you know, individual who just wants something that like is a kind of a cash flowing for them as if it's effectively a real estate business, you know, buy like a laundromat or something like that. And then just, you know, like cash flow, don't really care that much, don't show up there that often. Um, and then just, you know, if someone reaches out and the price is right, they'll sell it, right? Just like a piece of real estate, right? Um, you know, we're big fans of taking like a long-term hold approach. It's a little closer to like what Warren Buffett does where they own the companies forever. They buy stuff that like the world will always need. There's no like big economic trend. Um, with this company, we do infrastructure. Infrastructure is arguably the oldest you know, industry in history. And if you look at historically, especially what's happening now, every time there's a problem in the economy, the government's reaction is let me dump a ton of money into the infrastructure, right? They did it with the interstate system. They're doing it right now uh, with the Biden bill. Um, so we're, we're kind of fans of that, right? It's, it's, it's hard to, to go broke, if you will, in something like this over an extended period of time. And in Southern California, I mean, we've already encountered like a handful of like 100 plus year old uh, manufacturing companies but the kids keep running it i mean they're still in business still growing you know still there um so we love that sort of mentality and then like for the investor side you know we get to like we, we grow the company through you know both like acquisition as well as internal growth right which helps us extract value faster uh but then when it comes time to get like a real you know kind of payday for investor that they're on board for uh, we look more towards refinances right so manufacturing is you know, there's hard assets, there's, you know, things we can go to a bank and loan on. Banks love to loan on manufacturing. And um, we're able to do refinances to then extract returns for investors that way, pay off the debt again, over and over and over, as long as we see fit, versus having to come in and, um, you know, just say, hey, we're going to force a sale on year five or year seven. And because of that, everything we do, it's, it takes a much longer um, time horizon to it. Right. So when people sell us their companies, I mean, they know that like we're going to be on site. Uh, we're going to work in this thing and, you know, we're going to take long term mindsets. We're not going to come in and say, hey, who can I fire day one? Right. Because who can I fire, frankly, is a really easy way to add a ton of value to a company quickly. You know, you remove a few hundred thousand dollars worth of expenses. You get the appreciation of the multiple of the sale price times that, you know, easy, right? As long as the company doesn't collapse or whatever. Mm -hmm. And because of what we do, because we add a lot of software to our companies, um, we're able to like, you know, we, we can technically be in that position where we start doing layoffs. Um, interestingly enough, like with American Sheet Metal, um, we did the opposite. You know, we added a bunch of staff coming into it and we took kind of like a take three steps backwards to take a five steps forwards approach um, with what we do. And um, that's really hard to do sometimes if, um, you know, you're not taking a long term mindset. Definitely. Uh, another thing that stands out to me is as you are looking at the landscape of manufacturing companies, are you open to international manufacturing companies? Or are you are you want to stay more domestic in the United States? What is your view on on that particular side of things? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we've looked at companies before where they'll do business with Canada. You know, uh, frankly, I mean, there's plenty of companies that you know are looking for succession plans, even in Southern California. Um, so we've been busy here and it helps where we don't have to fly 
drive somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the like if you drew a 30 mile radius around downtown Los Angeles, you'd encompass a ton of industrial companies. I mean, and that's something mm-hmm. you can if you're in downtown, you can get to within, let's say, an hour. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think that's a much more um, effective strike zone than saying, hey, I'm going to open up the whole country. Um, with that said, I mean, we've had, you know, some deals in like the Midwest and things like that that have been brought to us that potentially were enticing. Um, but then we still have to travel you know, far to them. Um, what, what's kind of um, popular here in Southern California is manufacturing in Mexico. So um, especially companies that are down in San Diego, they'll like literally make a facility, right? Stones throw over the border, right. um, lower rates there and then bring the product in. Um, that's possible. I don't rule that out. I think if we were going to do that, we probably wouldn't charge into that ourselves. We would probably, you know, find like a company we'd buy that already has presence there and then leverage it that way. You know, okay. I think that's a much easier way to, to do that, but you know, we're not, we're not totally ruling it out, but I will also say like, you know, we are very big on American manufacturing and, um, you know, we purposely look for companies that make products that, you know, the customers themselves will always buy us a U.S. Um, provider, especially even better California provider infrastructure is one of those. Oftentimes they have to use U.S. steel um, and then they'll always, you know, try to invest in the, or try to give the work to somebody local, right? Not only is it easier to work with someone local, but also you're, you know, you're to kind of paying taxes on it, right? So, we, you know, they get to keep a local business alive. I thank you for opening my eyes. I didn't realize California was such a, a big place for manufacturing and industrial side. Yeah, it is. You know, it actually, I opened my eyes too when I first moved there. Um, Cause I actually, like I, I was, when I first got there, I didn't know that. And I was just like, holy crap. I mean, between, and I initially moved to San Diego and then went to LA and then went mm-hmm. up to the Bay Area. So I kind of went through it, but between San Diego and LA is huge pocket of manufacturing. And, you know, frankly, a lot of it is leaving the state. Either the guys are shutting down because no one wants to take over their companies or they're just leaving the state because, you know, it's cheaper to do something in Texas or something like that. So um, we are seeing a lot of that happening. Um, but overall, I mean, there's still a lot here, still a lot that have many, many years of history, good relationships. There's a big aerospace manufacturing, um, you know, like kind of call, call it um, manufacturing for high tech, semiconductors, uh, medical out here. Um, and, you know, there's architecture is a big one too. So for us, mm-hmm. we play in like infrastructure architecture. So those are industries that have to stay local. Um, but you know, unfortunately there, there still are like, um, I think California is one of the top five manufacturing states in the country. You can look it up if you're, forget what it was, third or something, Ohio is up there. Um, uh, but it's actually pretty high and, um, you know, it's just, it's a tough state to do business in fundamentally, but it's even a tougher state to do, um, to manufacture in. Um, so we hope it continues and we hope to continue to find companies that, you know, when I kind of band together with us, if you will, so that like we can, you know, use our resources together to be competitive with other cheaper states like Ohio and whatnot. And I have a, a non-manufacturing question for you uh, before yeah. I ask you about how investors could potentially work with you or what that process is. So here's my non-manufacturing question. You mentioned San Diego and LA. Now I went to San Diego last year. Okay. Well, I'm not going to give my full opinion. Which one do you enjoy better? Now, I don't know who all who is listening. I don't want you to offend anyone. But if you had to choose a place to uh, stay, the food, the culture, whatever entices you, would it be San Diego or L.A. and why? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, so I think, you know, I, I'm a New Yorker, first of all. And because of that, like, there's a big cultural 
similarity between people in LA and New York. Usually people live like they call them bi-coastal or something like right, that. Right. Um, so it's not totally weird to, for me to answer this with completely LA, but I think it's uh, bits and pieces, right? Like LA has an interesting geography in the same way New York does. It's very diverse. Um, and also it's also diverse culturally. Um, you know, and I lived in San Diego, I felt a little bit all like, you know, more of one type of culture, mm. right. You know, less diverse. Right. Um, so I, I definitely enjoy Los Angeles more. Um, but I can, you know, I can totally see the San Diego lifestyle. I mean, it's kind of polar opposite to New York than in, in a lot of ways, you know, which, which has been interesting kind of moving there. That's an interesting point of view. Uh, my mom is from New York. Uh, I haven't really spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, but I went to San Diego last year. I spent maybe four or five days out there. I loved it. I really loved, of course, I'm looking at it from a different point of view. I'm not, you know, living there every day, but I really enjoyed uh, the pace of it. Um, it's it more laid back. It's not too much hustle and bustle. I really enjoy San Diego. For those who've never been, just, you know, spend a week out there and um, tell me how, how you like it. All right. So I want to make sure we get this question in before we head out, because I know investors are listening to this episode and they may not even thought about manufacturing, but now they're 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 looking at this episode and saying, oh, well, maybe I need to pay attention. Um, how do investors work with you? How does that process go? How do they collaborate? How do they reach out? All that good stuff when it comes to investors. How do you work with investors who are interested in working alongside you? Sure. Yeah. Um, so we had investors for um, the American sheet metal mm -hmm. um, purchase. Um, and we like to continue to do that. Um, one thing that I like told all those investors was that like your participation in American sheet metal um, is really not just only a bet on the company, but it's also a bet on MSP, the manufacturing succession investment vehicle, in the sense that the team here is built to do other acquisitions. It's not built like a typical search fund where, um, you know, it's a one man band charging into a company and they guess mm -hmm. you're figuring things out. Um, so, you know, we have myself, we have, you know, an associate who helps with like the integration of all the companies. Um, we have our chief financial officer, Ron, who's a 34 year Deloitte veteran. And then we have Sam Rosati, who served on, uh, um, serves on our um, advisory team. He's, uh, I don't know, owns probably a dozen industrial companies in Tampa, Florida, so operations and deal support. Um, so that, that, that's, I think, first and foremost, remember, so like when we come in, we always you know, tell investors like, hey, we plan to do bolt-ons, we plan to grow pretty aggressively and have the stability of a manufacturing asset behind all of it. Um, but I think, you know, for us, like we look for people we want to work with, you know, our last deal is oversubscribed and, um, you know, we want to find stuff where, you know, people believe in us and the deal enough to be oversubscribed. So um, we're always excited to talk to people early. A lot of the people that we met on that deal, we talked to for the first time, like maybe a year before. Um, and they all kind of, you know, even asked to talk to others for reference checks and things like that. So we're always happy to do that if anyone wants to know about what we're like to work with. Um, and, you know, if anyone wants to just reach out and, and have a conversation, um, you know, I can send you my email and anyone can post it. But it's just J Brenner B as in boy, R-E-N-N-E-R -E -E at manufacturingsuccession.com. Or you can just go on our website, manufacturingsuccession.com and um, send a message. I will also say, I don't know by the time that this airs, but we've actually been going through a bit of a rebrand to we call ourselves Industrial Succession. Um, so you'll see that shortly, but all the original website um, links will also still work. So um, you can definitely email or reach out on anything I just said. Um, but, you know, we, when we put together investment groups, we, we tend to mix like private investors with um, 
people who own similar companies to ours mm-hmm. um, and things like that. So we really build the investment team as if it's like a, uh, I don't know, almost like a series A raise for a startup where it's like a strategic is involved and it's not just, you know, us at the table. And if we need to get like a strategic advisor, like we have one we could use for aerospace, we, we bring them on the team as well. And, um, you know, uh, the investors get the benefit of a lot of people at the table versus just, you know, me and myself. I, I, I'm I'm going to tell you something. As soon as I saw your website, I was blown away. Uh, I'm glad that you, you're, you're, you're very welcome. I I was very, I'm glad that you went the opposite direction than the crowd. Uh, The crowd is saying, Hey, service visit businesses. Oh, look over here. Look at all these shiny stuff over here. And I'm glad you went towards manufacturing, maybe because I'm, I'm I'm selfish and I want more people in manufacturing. Uh, so then, because I know you all will understand it better than I will as an investor. And so to have someone now that we can reach out to within our network that is specializing in the manufacturing side, in the industrial side, I think that uh, makes you, what's that thing they say in marketing, the purple cow uh, type situation? You, you create a a difference within uh, our our network because everyone else is doing uh, the same old, same old. And so thank you for doing that. Thank you for offering a, a different perspective. As soon as I saw your website, I immediately said we have to jump on a podcast episode because I want people to know that, hey, there are some other options out here than what you may be hearing every day. Um, for those who are listening, the business owners who are looking for that succession plan, yeah, let's leave with them as our um as we as we head out what do you have to say for those business owners who are looking for a succession plan they're looking for someone to pass on their legacy in the manufacturing industrial space yeah i think um you know this is a topic that um you know i've actually written a few articles on um especially with like manufacturing associations of like the gear association the lighting association which, by the way, those are segments we're actively looking for other companies and like platforms. You know, we're not just limited to, um, you know, infrastructure metals. Like we're looking at lighting, we're looking at renewables since I spend time in electric vehicles, whether it's services or manufacturing parts for it. Um, but like, I think the big thing, the big theme I've seen is that a lot of them um, don't realize the importance of having a redundancy in a management team. So like when they go to sell their company, they just read some article that says, hey, I'm valued at, you know, X amount of times on my, you know, EBITDA. Uh, but the problem is, is like when somebody wants to sell, usually they don't want to sell and then leave in five years, right? right. They want to sell and get out now. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like to those, it's like, if you can't find someone to come into your company to be like that management team that somebody can kind of rely on almost like into a property manager in a real estate transaction, um, where it's like someone could be out of state and that person runs the company, um, you know, like we're happy to help there. That's our whole thing, right? If you, if you want to stick around for some amount of years and that's fine and you'll probably you know, figure out a better plan with, you know, certain options. Um, and, you know, we have some owners that want to be advisors and stuff like that over the long term. So we'll entertain it. But for the most part, if like you really want to get out of your company now and looking for someone that can help with that in a few months, um, you know, we're there to help. Um, and, you know, we are actively looking. So just reach out, start the conversation. Um, and, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, for something now or in a few years, whenever it's appropriate. Um, we're always happy to talk at the minimum. At least we get to know each other over, you know, that period of time. So um, definitely, uh, you know, excited for, for other things we have going on. Thank you, Jules, so much for uh, stopping by, having a conversation with us here on How to Acquire Podcast. You have an open invite 
for a future if you want to come back and continue talking about uh, manufacturing or whatever else at the time you may be into maybe things you add something else to the arsenal uh, feel free to come back uh, to how to acquire podcast and we thank you so much for taking time out to speak for us today yeah thank you dj i very much enjoyed it i hope um, more of the listeners consider manufacturing um, especially in middle america there's not a lot of people that want to go out there and and uh, buy companies or even suburban parts of uh you know big cities right i think you can you can find a lot of value there and um you know no, don't be afraid to also start small uh, buy something where the company maybe doesn't have your three four million of ebitda because the manufacturing margins are low so that's a lot of revenue and a lot of employees and a intimidating to a lot of people so definitely don't be scared to buy like a 10 person company that makes a few hundred thousand of EBITDA because you'd be surprised in what you can do um, in terms of growth it's a very conservative industry that you know doesn't like technology doesn't like modern tools that are obvious to a lot of people and um, you could probably add a lot more value than you think uh, very quickly so um, I hope everyone uh, has a good luck with that that's a major gem you just dropped on them at the end thank you Jules so much uh, for dropping that gem we'll talk to you again next time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, CJ. Thank you.